Once upon a time, not so long ago, there was a podcast called Against the Law. Four intrepid truth seekers would meet up and tell each other wonderful tales from the ancient world, and sometimes they'd invite special guests to these gatherings. One evening, about a fortnight ago, they wanted to talk about storytelling in the ancient world, but somebody was missing. Xenia was there, the brave ancient Roman history buff perched on piles of research, and it wasn't clever Meg who was there as usual to talk about the ancient Greeks. It couldn't have been wise Barney, who always told a story from the ancient Near East, and it wasn't Flo, who didn't really know anything about history but attended these meetings anyway. Ah, of course. It's Caroline Lawrence, our dear friend the author. She's a wonderful storyteller, so she fits just right into this episode about storytelling and the ancient world. So we are furthering our education today. Of course, we've got our very good friend, Caroline Lawrence, here joining us. Um, I need a basic rundown of storytelling in the ancient world. So can anyone tell me about how storytelling is relevant to their area of expertise? How is that? How is that used in education? Can I jump straight in? Um, Because I feel like storytelling, as everyone knows, is kind of the the main activity of my main man, Big H, Homer. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I might have just broken my own record for quickest Homer mention, um, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> always an achievement. But he is essentially a storyteller. If he exists, I think, again, that's a, is a good point to have a little against the law. Homer might not exist, might not be a real man, might be several men, might be a woman, could be anybody. We just don't know. In a trench coat. He could be, yeah, he could be eels in a in a trench coat um <laughs> and probably is according to that guy who thinks that <laughs> Kate, like uh, the iliad is set in the fens and it's something to do with elium do you remember that anyway we can cut that yes the iliad the iliad yeah i've got I've, i'm misremembering that and i'm imagining he thinks it's about eels fighting each other but that's definitely not the case i think it's just something about the etymology <laughs> um anyway <laughs> yes homer is an epic poet but that's kind of a fancy way of saying he's a storyteller. Um, and a bard is another word that that gets used in English. And he, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey are these massive, massive stories. And he tells them out loud. So I think that's the other thing that would separate Homer from how we might think of as, say, a novelist. You know, we've got Caroline with us today who writes novels. Um, and that is definitely a form of storytelling. But in the ancient world storytelling in in Greece storytelling is oral it's out loud so Homer has memorized the lines of these poems thousands and thousands of lines about 15,000 lines of poetry and then speaks them out loud or even sings them they're kind of musical um, because they're in in dactylic hexameter which is a meter and it kind of sounds like dum da da dum 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 da da dum 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 da da dum dum it's about 16 syllables in each line and that's but the rhythm is so important to it. It's kind of partly how he remembers it is these um, these really important sort of rhythmic structures and structures of sentences within that. Would you like to hear the first line of the Iliad, which I have memorized, because that's what um, that was their textbook in the ancient world, as I'm you're going to say, both in the Greek and the Roman world is kids, boys, I should say, learned Homer and mainly the Iliad. Um, do you want to hear the first line? Yes, Always. please. <laughs> okay. 
Mena naeditea pelea deo achilaos, ulo menein, he muri achae algoeteke polastitimus psuchas, aidi proyapsen heron, autuste heloria toki cunesin, oia noisite passi dios de teleto bule, exude ta prote, diasteten erisante, atre des te anexandron, kai dios achileos. And obviously the last word was achileos. And they memorized, some people could memorize the whole Iliad. It's a really sort of lyrical thing. It's bouncing and it's got this like rhythm to it. It's really nice to hear. And you Absolutely. saw how when I got stuck, I had to start over from the beginning because <laughs> you kind of learn it like all s- stuck together. Mm, exactly and it's about these these kind of exactly the sections of the line and how the meter helps you with that and it does have that it's often described as um those those dactyls which is like dum diddy it's kind of like long short short is yeah. often there's sort of a metaphor of sometimes like horse horse hoof beats you know how an i am is often thought of as a heart so the meter that shakespeare is writing in is like is often thought of like a heartbeat that that's a it's a um a two beat metrical unit whereas a dactyl is three beats and it's often, it's like, dum da dum da so maybe chariot wheels or, or horse hoof beats. I'm really struggling to say horse hoof beats. Um, something like that. And it's it's just, yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. It's great that you read it out loud, actually, Caroline, because that kind of links into what I was going to say briefly next. Uh, recited it. I did not read it. I recited oh, it. <laughs> sorry. Of Big course, difference. just like Homer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, I just have to say dactyl, of course, means finger and it's long, short, short. And if you look at your pointer finger or any finger it's got a long bone and then two short bones so yes exactly like a pterodactyl the dinosaur is is something finger isn't it wing wing Um, pteros is wing 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 finger yeah beautiful um yeah i was just gonna i was gonna mention the muse so um in the iliad so it's it's men in aida thea and menin is is rage um aida is sing and thea is goddess so the Iliad opens with an invocation to the muse, Thea, as in goddess, like, um, like the, you know, Theos is god and Thea is goddess. And and the Odyssey opens with um, uh, Andromoyen Ape Musa. So the Musa is, is, a, is the muse. So both of the epic poems open with this invocation to the muse. And they don't, um, Homer doesn't name the muse. So we're not 100% sure who he's talking about, but there's kind of a couple of obvious candidates. Calliope is the, um, the muse of epic. But there's also Mnemosyne, who is the goddess of memory. And memory is so important. There's an amazing um, section of the Iliad that I know I've been talking for ages, but I might just read this out really quickly, obviously in English, um, because the content is what we're looking for here, not Caroline's amazing recital of the rhythm. Um, but, But this is in book two of the Iliad, where Homer is talking about all the different names and the sort of identities and the, the battle units of all the different people who fought at Troy. And he says, I could not speak of the crowd or name them, not if I had 10 tongues or 10 mouths or unbroken speech or a bronze heart, unless the muses of Olympia, daughters of Zeus, remembered those who came to Ilium. So basically the epic poet Homer is saying his, his ability to tell this story is based on this kind of epic supernatural memory that comes straight from the muses. And he, as the epic poet, is, is sort of like a, like how a priest might have a relationship with God and allow other people to access God, something like that. He sort of has that access to this, um, to this epic supernatural memory. So I absolutely love that. And I think it's such a cool way of storytelling is saying I'm kind of getting this straight from the source almost because the idea is that the muses were, were kind of there and saw all of this. So it's a very direct um, form of storytelling, but it is also absolutely beautiful language. 
And Nemosine is the mother of the muses. There are usually um, nine muses, but Nemosine is the mother of the muses. So she's the big one. Absolutely. She's the queen. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right. Where else in the ancient world uh, does storytelling play a big role? In the Roman world. So it's, um, as Caroline said, it's similar. The, the Romans used that those epic poems as teaching tools um, in the same way that in uh, the, the Greeks would have learned Homer off by heart. Um, and the, but the cool thing about how the Aeneid, which is the kind of follow-on epic, the, the Latin follow-on epic from the great Greek Homeric epics, the, the cool thing about how that was used in schools is not only was it used to teach Latin, but it was also used to teach effectively the story of Rome. So it's very teleological in that sense. What it's doing is, as, as a standalone story, it links Rome, its, its power and its presence in the whole empire, to um, a Greek history um, Greek culture, and then it also through that story looks forward um, right up to in, you know the story is set just after Troy, but it looks forward right up to Augustus and and kind of anticipates the Roman Empire beyond, so that any schoolchild who is learning the Aeneid, who is just learning Latin, just learning the language, is also learning the story of Rome the story of Roman culture, the story of Greek culture. Um, and they're also learning their place in terms of how they fit into this great story of Roman history ending or leading up to Augustus um, and the foundation of empire. So it's this incredibly powerful tool, especially if you're getting these, these young men all over the empire learning Latin, it's an incredibly powerful tool to get people like bought into the idea of empire. It's very, very clever. And this, the Aeneid, this was written um, by a poet called Virgil um, quite soon after Augustus became emperor. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Do you want to read the first lines? Armavirumque canotroe qui primus ab oris Italiam fato profugus lawinaque venit litora. Beautiful. Yeah, that was beautiful. Did you talk last time about how um, the first six books of the Aeneid are essentially like the Odyssey and the last six books are like the Iliad based on the Iliad? We didn't talk about that last time, so please do elaborate. Yes, please. Well, I've just said it. There, It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. The Iliad's, I think, 24 books. The Aeneid's 12 books. And um, he even, it's beautifully divided in half. And of course, uh, if you know the idea of the hero's journey, that, that template of storytelling that... Um, that Joseph Campbell um, extrapolated from all world mythology and that Hollywood screenwriters use halfway through every myth, the hero has a visit to death um, or it's his bleakest, darkest moment. And that's exactly when Aeneas goes to the underworld is at the end of book six. It sounds a bit like a, a Game of Thrones story, that. They're all based on this template of the hero's journey. Yeah. And so are all the Marvel movies and everything. Well, lots of Loki in the Mar in the Marvel uh, films, and um, I think Caroline, you might have a fact about Loki to bring us. Moi, me? 
Barney? Me? Barney? It's a, no. It's a pun, Oh, not right? that Loki. Oh, you're too clever for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm obsessed with memory. And um, here's a fun fact. I will introduce this. The, because they didn't have as much writing as we do today, and there's certainly not as much input internet, you know, visual and stuff. They had amazing memories. And um, St. Augustine tells us of a certain Simplicius who could get this recite Virgil backwards. What? That's he a didn't bit. just know the Aeneid forwards. He could recite the whole Aeneid backwards. Mind-boggling. I don't know if he did it line by line. <laughs> Yeah, what is the plot of the Aeneid backwards? <laughs> um, <laughs> he finds a wife. <laughs> Seneca, Seneca the Elder, could remember 2,000 names in order. And Themistocles, when he was asked about this um, art, the art of memory was really important in the ancient world because it's a technique of rhetoric. And all of education is geared to an end of rhetoric, which is to train a young man of noble birth or who could afford it, who could afford the teacher, you know, and everything to be an orator and to speak eloquently and gain honor that way by, you know, improving the state of the city state or whatever. It's all, it's all about oratory. And so there are five, five um, kind of parts of rhetoric. And one of them is memory, which is essentially memorizing the speech that you're going to give, because to really impress, you do it without notes. And um, someone came up to Themistocles once and said, I would like you, you know, do you want to learn the art of memory? And he said he wants to learn, he would prefer the science of forgetting because his memory was always already <laughs> so good. He wanted to learn how to forget. Nowadays, we pride ourselves, you know, uh, people have competitions to remember as many numbers of pi as they possibly can. They would have wiped the floor with us. Barney, I, uh, I noticed that you've been very quiet. Yeah, I was just, I guess before I go on to the ancient Near East, I think it's nice to, it's nice to put those memory abilities in, in modern context. Because I think, you know, sometimes if we think of somebody who was able to memorize the entirety of, of um, the Iliad or something like that, it feels very far away from us in time. Um, but I think it's also worth remembering that, you know, there's always been a fairly high importance um, amongst very devoted uh, Muslims, for example, to be able to learn the Quran by heart. And that's still an accolade that Muslims around the world today are able to achieve. Um, you become what's known as Hafiz if you've memorized the whole of the Quran. And that's, um, you know, that's thousands and thousands of words. So it's still, a, you know, still a tradition that's, that's current today, memorizing these important cultural texts. That's such an interesting parallel. And I think even it's slightly different. You wouldn't be expected to memorize the whole thing. But I think a lot of Christians like will sort of, you know, say verses from the Bible, won't they? And so look, you might see it in like a difficult time or something. And I think that's interesting, again, in terms of that, like that's definitely how the ancients used the Iliad and the Odyssey as these almost, yeah, like these cultural touchstones. So you'd be like, oh, this situation is just like when Homer said. So it's interesting to compare it to religious texts in that way. I noticed, Caroline, in, in all of your books, um, your Roman mystery series, a lot of the characters quote Homer and Virgil quite regularly. Um, and the Bible, of course. 
Yeah, and and remember what the aim of all this education is for. It's for rhetoric, a speech again. And if you can be giving a speech in the courtroom or whatever, and you come up with a lovely quote from an apt quote from Virgil or or Homer, then that's bonus points for you. I've I've always been impressed by people who are able to memorize poems um, and and just sort of trot those out at will. I think if I was going to memorize a poem, a long poem by heart, I would attempt to memorize the 999 line long poem from the start of Pale Fire by Vladimir um, Nabokov. Well, I think by next week, we'd love to listen to that. Sorry, Nabokov's, um, I wrote about this in my thesis, Nabokov's autobiography is called Speak Memory, and he wanted to call it Speak Nemesine, so the, the goddess of memory, um, but his publishers told him not to because they were like, that's too niche. So that's so interesting that you should say that. I just have to tell you about Plato. In the Theatetus, Plato talks about memory as being a block of wax in our soul. And I've actually, this is here, here's a little bit from the dialogue, which I've just jotted down. Socrates, please assume then for the sake of argument that there is in our souls a block of wax, in one case larger, in another smaller, in one case the wax is pure, in another impure and harder, in some cases softer. Theotetus, I assume all that. (laughs) Socrates, let us then say that this is the gift of memory, mnemosyne, the mother of the muses, and that whenever we wish to remember anything we see or hear or think of in our own minds, we hold this wax under the perceptions and thoughts and imprint them upon it, just as we make impressions from seal rings on a wax tablet. Isn't that brilliant? Love that. It's so cool. I love that idea, that metaphor. Isn't there something, there's something about the words, isn't it? That wax and it's like keros and care, the words for heart and wax are similar. It's also nice because it sort of alludes to, you know, unintentionally, um, but one of those sort of fortuitous historical coincidences that it kind of alludes to like the plasticity of the brain as well. Yes. Um, in, yeah, in the softness of softness of the wax i think in in an era where people are so worried about their attention spans um you know i hear a lot of people saying they want to like detox from social media and stuff like that and they're worried they can't concentrate on things but um or you know people are worried after leaving university or something like that they're not quite as sharp as they once were but um i think you know it's nice to be reminded that the brain can be quite elastic um and can kind of spring back when you start applying yourself or start getting really stuck into something again I really hope that my brain springs back soon post-baby. <laughs> <laughs> Maternal amnesia last two years, that's what I was always oh, okay. But I love what Plato does is he takes the memory, which is an abstract concept, or mnemosyne is actually a personification of memory, but he gives you this wonderful image of wax that we can all imagine. Um, the color is yellow and it smells like honey. I've got a beeswax writing tablet. It smells like honey even after five years. And you can imagine the kinesthetic, the feeling of pressing the ring into the wax or taking the stylus and writing words. So it appeals to that, that uh, the images agentes, the, vi- the striking images that um, Cicero and Quintilian and the author of Ad Herenium all talk about. Do we think that storytelling is, makes education easier? I was thinking about this in, in the context of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I always apologise whenever I bring up Gilgamesh, but I feel like in a storytelling episode, it's 
it's inevitable that I'll have to talk about Gilgamesh. Um, Barney, Barney, yeah. I think Gilgamesh means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, <laughs> that's very nice. That's beautiful. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, it, it, much in the same way that um, Meg explained the the sort of situation of Homer for uh, education via storytelling, and um, Xenia did with the Aeneid. Um, Gilgamesh occupies a very similar space in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, it was a big part of the scribal curriculum, for example. And so through knowing the story, uh, you would not only learn, uh, you know, scribal craft, so how to, how to write signs and how to compose Akkadian grammar um, and Sumerian as well, uh, but you would also be learning about the the kind of the ideals um, of the, of the society that held Gilgamesh up as as one of their hero kings, um, and you know with and learning about important topics um, to to the uh, the culture in which you found yourself. So you know Gilgamesh discusses immortality um, and how kind of an individual can be remembered um, for their for their accomplishments and their feats, um, even if they don't live forever, which I think will be very familiar um, to Meg and all of us, really, um, versus, you know, being sort of self-aggrandizing and self-interested, which is what this is what Gilgamesh kind of learns over the course of the epic. So, you know, it's it's both used in the scribal curriculum as a teaching tool, but it's also, you know, because it's a it's a strong cultural myth, you're you're learning about the the sort of the values and the morals of the um of the society as you go. Barney, when you said familiar to me, I assume you mean like the idea of glory and, and legacy and memory being so important rather than in Homer, rather than me personally being obsessed with my own. You know, oh, yeah, no, it's just I find you very self-aggrandizing. Yeah. <laughs> Savage, call me out on the pod. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The kleos, there's there's two there's a parallel phrase, isn't there? Um to the Greek kleos on like never-ending glory. Uh sort of and the storytelling helps you achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at a more a slightly more like abstract from the engineer east level i was thinking about um how fairy tales um kind of introduce children to storytelling as you know as a as a literary form um because you know they always start with once upon a time and then you're very quickly introducing the characters whether that's a princess or a pauper or a dragon or something like that um and so yeah you're sort of not you're never as a child you're never just hearing a story you're also very quickly learning about um, the sort of the formal structures character archetypes and stuff like that um and i think i think you see that in in gilgamesh as well um you know we have a king we have a prostitute we have a wild man from the steppe obviously they're very preoccupied with being inside and outside um, urban spaces in mesopotamia uh, we have the gods and so it's just a very good little like sort of cultural summary of, of life in Mesopotamia and what's important. Um, yeah, so I think it, it does it does its job very well um, as an educational tool. The epic. So that's like almost from our perspective, looking back then, it's it's interesting to see what was important to them from a storytelling perspective, like what what they wanted to tell stories about. Also tells us like what was important to them. 
Very much so. Yeah, because an important part of, of Gilgamesh is Gilgamesh's interactions with the gods, for example, um, which we know was a very big part of Mesopotamian life. Um, you know, their explanation for how people got sick, for example, comes from the gods. And, and you know, but you're also learning about how capricious they are. You know, Ishtar um, decides that she wants Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh doesn't really have very much say in the matter. Um, and so these these themes um come to light in the text and so yeah yeah they're cultural teaching tools as well as formal ones i think is the point i'm trying to make that's lovely that reminded me of something i was thinking about again i wrote about this in my thesis um the idea that they teach us something about what was important there's a really cool thing that happens between the iliad and the odyssey where in the iliad um characters will speak about how their memory will survive so they'll sort of almost allude to the existence of the poem that they're in by saying things like, you know, Hector says in, in future, some people will look at my grave and speak of my brave deeds and stuff like that. Um, but he's talking about um, he's talking about himself kind of in the present being remembered in the future. And then in the Odyssey, which is kind of a sequel and happens after the kind of the epic battle of the, you know, the epic action of the Trojan War. Um, there is a poet, Demodocus, who sings of Odysseus's actions and, and the Trojan horse and stuff in the Iliad but within the story so Demodocus is, is, a, is a character in the Odyssey who sings about the plot of the Iliad um, and it's like it's like Odysseus is kind of in the sequel to his own story he's sort of in the aftermath of it and I feel like that's a really interesting parallel there that there it, it tells you in a sort of metatextual way almost it tells us what they were interested in it within the poems the stories that were important to them while also being themselves stories which are now so important to us that's such a tongue twister or a brain twister. But yeah, I really like that. That's really cool. And, and amazing that it was happening sort of within those two poems, which we think of as relatively close together. Mm. Um, they may have been composed at different times, but because the Aeneid comes so long after the popularity of, um, of the Homeric epics. And yet even within that, you've also got that sort of similar echo of um, someone being caught up within their own story. So when Aeneas meets Dido in the Aeneid, like she already knows him as basically a celebrity from the Trojan War. And she's um, in what she's she's building the whole city of Carthage as as he arrives. And in one of the buildings that she's having constructed, um, she's like got an artist to paint the story of the Trojan War already all around on this building, which is so funny because, you know, people would have recognized that from like the, the contemporary time that the Aeneid was being written. They would have seen the story of the Trojan War painted on their own buildings. And that's kind of paralleled in what Dido is doing already contemporary with Aeneas. I'm, I'm getting myself a bit mixed up with the timelines here, but I hope you guys are, are following because I just think that's really cool, that being caught up in your own story already. So cool to arrive at a palace and see a picture of your exploits on the wall or hear a bard telling the story of your exploits. Yeah, you can see why Aeneas gets a bit up himself, can't you? He's like... <laughs> Uh, the ego on this guy. Xenia, you mentioned echoes there. Um, when I was researching today's episode, I found an incredibly cool fact that I think, A, I've never dropped before, and I think might be news to everybody else as well. It's I'm about, so excited. And it's about storytelling. Did you know that Gilgamesh appears in a Roman text? What? Ooh. Yes, 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 yes. And I don't know very much about this guy, so you're going to have to help me fill out the context. But um, Gilgamesh is named in a uh, in some of the writings of Elian. Oh. Do we know much about mad. him? Oh, oh. So I think Elian has a book about animals. 
Is it um, like Elianus? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I'm pronouncing it right, right? It's an E, not an A. It's Claudius Aelianus, and he lived in the period of Elagabalus, or Septimius Severus, born around mm. 175 AD, died 235. He'd be late. <laughs> that's good. That, no, but that's even better. So um, I think it's exciting that it's late because um, the Gilgamesh name drop that turns up in Elian uh, is in the context of a story about the kindness of animals to mankind for some reason. Um, and he's teaching moral lessons to be found in, in sort of the natural world. And uh, a king throws a baby out the window um, and it's caught by an eagle and uh, dropped off in a garden where it's raised by a humble gardener. And that king's name was Gilgamesh. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm already claiming this is my favourite thing. <laughs> and he goes on to become king of Babylon. Um, so what's interesting about that is that there's, there's sort of memories of like storytelling details from the ancient Near East in there, as well as like more universal themes, as well as these like nice little Roman hints as well. Because um, obviously we've spoken before about the kind of um, baby raised by gardeners trope, which um, happens to Sargon the Great, for example. Sargon is uh, cast down the river like Moses in a basket, um, a reed basket, and he's raised by a gardener. Uh, so we have that little storytelling trope there. Um, and then obviously being saved by a wild animal is very familiar to a Roman audience from the Romulus and Remus myth. Um, and it's just so brilliant to see the, this, the kind of like the tiny little hints of, of Near Eastern DNA and then the Gilgamesh name kind of carrying through for thousands of years and so the fact that this is you know that Elian's a late roman writer um is super exciting to me because that means you know you can see that there's this oral tradition of gilgamesh that's been circulating around the near east um and then into the roman empire um across such an incredible span of time that's wicked gilgamesh really is never having to say you're sorry <laughs> <laughs> well i hope that the person who threw him out the window might might want to apologize for <laughs> The villain of the story. The, the baddie. But yeah, and the, he's king of Babylon. Again, it's it's like not correct. Gilgamesh is, is the king of Uruk, but like he's king of something. And, you know, even just mm. knowing at, at such a such a distance in, in time and space um, that, there was a, that there was a king thousands of years ago, um, allegedly in Mesopotamia, called Gilgamesh is like pretty mind-blowing to me. So thank you, Elian. Elian. Eels. Not the eels again. <laughs> Not the eels, eels again. <laughs> the kindness of eels. Goodness me. Well, I think that brings us to our favourite things then. And I've, I, mm, I know what my favourite thing is, but I'm going to be courteous and I'm going to let you go first, Caroline. Right. Are we ready? My favourite thing is Gilgamesh. He's so cool. I love him that he lasts and lasts right up to Elian. <laughs> it is, it's got some staying power there. And we're still talking about him now, so the tradition is alive and well. Yes, and I have to say that the power of visual memory of a striking image is that the image I will never forget from Gilgamesh's epic is when he's with Enkidu, who's died, and he longs for his friend to come back to life. And then suddenly a maggot falls out of Enkidu's nose. Ew, ew, ew. 
But it's the tragedy and the reality of death and the desire we all have to bring back those we love. It's so yeah. powerful. It's so visceral, isn't it? It's literally yeah. the insides. Wow. Horrible. Right. Uh, on that disgusting note, Barney, uh, Gilgamesh is from your neck of the woods. I'm coming coming to you for your favourite thing from today. Well, I actually thought today was chock block of sorry, chock block with some very interesting facts, and I had many, many favourite things. Um, but because I am a sucker for all things meta, um, I really liked Meg's um, mention of the the lines of kind of self awareness about being remembered in in ancient Greek texts. Was it Hector, Meg, that you said thinking about how he would be memorialised? Yeah, a few of them do it. Hector's the one I'm thinking of. He imagines someone standing. He imagines it's actually he doesn't imagine himself he imagines someone standing by the grave of his victim and saying this man was killed by the famous Hector which is always an interesting inversion but yeah I love that too it's so interesting yeah so that was my favorite thing thank you very much fabulous Meg I'm coming back over to you what is your favorite thing from today well I think I did kind of you know choose the Gilgamesh um story as my favorite thing in the moment but I will graciously relinquish that and say my second favourite thing was hearing Caroline and Xenia read aloud, or sorry, recite from memory um, the first few lines of the Iliad and Virgil's Aeneid. I absolutely always love hearing ancient poetry read aloud, so really, really enjoyed that. Brilliant. Xenia, what was your favourite thing from today? I really liked the the story within a story um, of Meg's in the Odyssey. Um, yeah how it was already fame was already happening storytelling was already happening within the world i think that's so cool it was rather cool and my favorite thing is uh nothing that was mentioned in the podcast but it was just remembering my own childhood uh, at school when i uh, got my own back on a teacher because i had memorized a poem uh about slough uh, and uh, that was when my IT teacher was born and I read it back to him which uh, and it goes like this the beginning goes like this come friendly bombs and rain on slough it isn't fit for humans now not even grass to graze a cow loom over death and he refused to believe that the, uh, the poet laureate John Bateman could have written that about slough and I turned up for my detention and was summarily dismissed because he'd googled it in uh, the lunch break so it that this whole episode has reminded me of the value of memory and poetry and storytelling uh, and how you can get your own back on your teachers by having a superior memory and knowledge. So that's my favourite thing. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you once again, Caroline, for joining us. We love having you on the podcast. Well, I'm going off to read Eileen or Elian as soon as possible and also look up that Slough poem by John Betjeman. <laughs> Brilliant. And you can join us next time for another episode of Against the Law. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can always choose to support us on Patreon. We've got all sorts of tiers for every budget, starting from just £3 a month. Benefits include getting each episode a day early, stickers and your name in cuneiform. You can find us on Twitter at Against Law and you can also find us on TikTok at Against the Law Podcast. We're also always happy to hear suggestions, questions about the podcast and other requests. If you want to email us, our email is againstthelawpodcast at gmail.com. Hold up. 